Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. Tonight's episode is the recording of our most recent live Story Night event held at Calvary Mac on June 27th. If you'd like to watch the video version of the event, we've included the link in the episode notes. This is Laura Johnson's story, and we're going to skip over the welcome and fellowship part of the event, picking up the audio with the opening song by Abby Pearson. Once Laura begins her story, you'll hear her reference the stories of many other women. On the stage, there was a board with several books that Laura opened to read throughout her own story. With that visual image in mind, Let's tune in now to the Story Night event from June 2021. If you've been walking the same old road for miles and miles If you've been hearing the same old voice and the same old lies If you're trying to fill the same old holes inside There's a better life There's a better life if you got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom or saving, he's a prison shaking savior. If you got chains, he's a chain breaker. We've all searched for the light. Chain breaker. 
I hope you enjoyed that song. We have some pretty amazing musicians and we're just so glad to get to use that to share it with, with all of you. And I would like to invite up Frankie. Frankie is here and she's gonna tell you a little bit more about Laura before Laura tells you her story. So I had heat exhaustion last week. So if I pass out, don't worry. I'll probably get up in a minute and just keep going. So Laura asked me if I was gonna embarrass her today. And I'm not, except that I'm an adult on her, which does embarrass her. A few months back, I texted Laura to wish her a happy birthday. And she said, thanks. Would you like to come introduce me in a couple months? And I said, sure. For what? I, I had no idea what she was talking about. But I said, yeah, sure, you know, that's just the relationship we have. I'm like, I have no idea what is going on and what she's getting me into, but that's how our relationship works. So Laura is one of my dearest friends. We've been friends for roughly 20 years. I planned to attend a women's Bible study 20 years ago. It was a weekly study, and it was at Pastor Ron and Marlene's house. It was like any other women's study, but for some reason, it was at their house, not at the church, I can't remember why. And Marlene wasn't even gonna be there at the women's study at her house. Pastor Ron was gonna be there and she said, Frankie, can you please come and like bring some food? And I'm like, oh sure, you know. I, I didn't even dress up. Pastor Ron and I though, we have a good relationship, so it was like, I just wore my hoodie and I brought food and he didn't turn me away. I got there that night and we had worship time we didn't really do a book study or anything that we had been doing because Marlene didn't show. She just invited us all over and said, here you go, Ron. <laughs> so I was just wearing a hoodie and I wasn't my best and I saw this, this girl sitting there and we just struck up a conversation. We sang some hymns, we ate, we prayed, we talked. I had, had not seen Laura at church before. I was like, where did this person come from? How had we not seen each other? We're kind of the same age, you know? But she asked for prayer that night because they had just found out that they were pregnant. And uh, they were worried about medication she had been taking up until she found that out. And so that night I went home and I told my husband, oh, there's this girl I've met at Bible study tonight and she's pregnant and she asked for prayer, so we need to pray for them. So for over the next few months, we saw them at church on a regular basis. And they had this really cute little girl, cute little blonde curls and big brown eyes. And I mean, we would have been friends with them just to see that little girl. <laughs> because she is just adorable and she still is. I recognized her husband from Dayton. He was several years older than me <laughs> from Dayton. And my husband recognized him and he kind of made this comment like, gosh, I never expected to see him at church. And I said to him, well, he probably thinks the same thing of you. <laughs> so I think that they probably had a, a Saul-Paul moment where, you know, if, if God can change someone like Saul, he can do anything for any of us. And it's kind of a funny story because we heard, we heard that later. Like Laura told me, oh, yeah, James, guess what? I met this girl at Bible study at Marlene's house, and she can sing, and she's my age, and we need to become friends with them. And he said, what's her name? And she said, I don't know, but her name on her hoodie said Wisdom. That's my maiden name. And he goes, no, we can't be friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
we do what we do, and we get to be friends anyway, despite what our husbands think. So here we are, 20 years later, we're still great friends. We've done so many things together. I mean, our kids are the same ages, so we've had campouts, sleepovers, like random beach trips. The women will go to happy hour, and the men will play video games, and it's just a really great memories that we've had. She'll do anything for, for her friends. We went on a, a rafting trip last summer, which is so fun. It was like, hey, you guys want to go rafting? Sure, let's go rafting. None of us had done that before. We, it might have been probably really stupid, but we're like, hey, let's go rafting. Hey, we have life jackets. What could possibly go wrong? It actually wasn't that bad at all. It was really, really fun. But let me tell you why Laura is such a special person to me. And I'm sure she's special to you in similar ways. Laura is a woman of faith and of joy. If Laura believes God is speaking into her her heart, she will do absolutely anything she is called to do. And she will do it with joy in her heart. She will teach Sunday school. She will make food for dozens of stinky teenagers on bike trips. She will retire early from her job. She'll bring food to a family who's ill and sickness. She'll bring medicine and groceries to a neighbor who's sick and homebound. She'll love your children as if they were her own, as she has for me. She'll move your family across the country, even if it means saying goodbye. And then she'll also show up and help you unload your truck when you move back to Oregon. (laughs) She's kind and she's honest. She's a wonderful, wonderful wife and mother and a loving daughter and granddaughter. And she's a true friend and a gentle yet bold child of God. When I texted birthday wishes to her, this is what I wrote, and it absolutely is true from the depths of my heart. Happy birthday to one of the most loving, caring, giving, godly women I know. I'm so thankful God saw it fit to put us in each other's lives nearly 20 years ago, and has also allowed us to love each other through the valleys and the mountains, and even let our husbands put aside their initial hesitation to let us be friends and sisters through the blood of Christ. Who knew that one uneventful women's Bible study would lead to a lifelong of friendship? Many years and much love to you, my friend. With that, I'd like to invite Laura up here to share her story, and I pray that that Jesus will empower her with the Holy Spirit, fill her with peace, and give her the words that will speak into our hearts. And I hope I didn't embarrass you. And get the tissues out. Thanks, everybody. Hello, everybody. It's really bright up here. (laughs) Thank you for coming. What a special treat to see all the familiar faces and some new people as well. I want to say thank you to Abby. Thank you so much for doing that song. Both of the songs that, that are sang by our Abby tonight just are really, really special to me. So I really appreciate you <laughs> learning that with all the VBS stuff you were doing this week. So thank you. And Frankie, thank you so much. <laughs> Who would have known that uh, 20 years ago we'd be here today and our husbands be best friends and we get to move you into your forever home. So very cool. All right, let's get started. First of all, to be asked to share my story here tonight was a complete honor, but that honor was quickly followed by fear. (laughs) Fear of what could I possibly share that would be interesting. 
Because you see, I had gone to, well, I've gone to all of the story nights so far. And so I immediately started comparing myself to all the previous speakers. And some of them have been very, very powerful and moving and, you know, that, that emotional tug on me. <laughs> Eventually, I was able to replace that negative self-talk with the truth that every single lady has a story. Not one of them is going to be identical to the next, but we all have a story, and so here I am to share my story. <laughs> my story is a search of joy. It's a story that's very interdependent and intertwined with the stories of several other ladies. So this evening, as you can see, I'm going to take some time <laughs> to share some of the stories of other ladies because my story wouldn't be complete without each one of them. So the first person we're going to take a look at is Evelyn's story. And Evelyn's story was written in 2006. She was about 60 years old, and she wrote this story to share with her church body in Indianapolis, Indiana. It is written that God knew us before we were born, that while we were still in our mother's womb, he knew all about us. Sometimes that's so hard to comprehend, that he would know everything we do before we do it. I've made many wrong decisions in my life, as many of us do, and yet he can take our mistakes and turn them into good. I married when I was 16, had my first child before I was 17, by the time I was 32, I had given birth to seven babies, four girls, three boys. I loved my children, and I still do. I was divorced shortly after the seventh child was born. And shortly after I was divorced, I was with a friend and discovered I was pregnant with child number eight. I was so ashamed of what I had done. Here I am a single mom with teenagers, and I'm supposed to be setting a good example for them, and I get pregnant out of wedlock. I know it happens more than we're aware of, but it shouldn't have happened to me. I didn't tell anyone for quite a while. I didn't even go to the doctor till the eighth month. I felt it would be better for my baby to have not only a mother, but a father too. I was on welfare at the time, so I told my caseworker my decision, and even though she told me I could keep the baby, I still felt in my heart it was the best thing to do. May 3rd, 1977, I gave birth to a daughter. All I saw was a black-haired baby and was told it was a girl. I named her Daylina Roberta. So we're going to return to Evelyn's story in a bit. For now, I want to pick up at my conception. I was conceived out of a one-night stand and nine months later, put up for adoption. You see, God has had a plan for me since before I was even born. On a Tuesday 44 years ago, my mom, Judy, received a phone call letting her know that she and my dad would finally become parents. This was a dream that they had been waiting for for over two years, but they were gonna be parents in three days. <laughs> three days. Most expectant parents get seven to nine months to prepare for a baby. Though they had been waiting in the adoption system for two years, they really only had three days to get ready for me. <laughs> they didn't even have a crib 
But they had a very sweet friend who had girls just a little older than me, and she helped them out a ton. So I've known all my life that I was adopted, but I, had, I have never, ever felt adopted or that I didn't fit in or that I wasn't loved as my parents' own. Matter of fact, my mama is my best friend. Evidently, my parents had friends who adopted a baby boy, and it was just a couple years after I was born, so I was probably about two toddling around. No crying, Mom, I saw that. <laughs> but uh, so my friends adopted a baby boy, and I was, like I said, about two, just a toddler, and uh, this baby boy was laying uh, on a blanket and just cooing, and I bent over him and I said, Michael, we're very special, because we're adopted. Considering that my parents' dream had finally come true, it might seem that we all lived happily ever after, but as stories go, that's not always the case. And their marriage came to an end. I was about three or four when my parents divorced, and mom and I continued to live in Red Key, Indiana. Uh, this is where my dad and my, my paternal grandparents also lived. I attended kindergarten there, and my favorite memory was when the leprechauns came and visited us uh, during recess time and left us treats on our desks. That summer, we moved to another town in Indiana with my soon-to-be stepdad, and so I started a new school for first grade. I remember that year so well. My mom remarried when I was six, and I happened to learn how to ride my bike while they were on their honeymoon up in a hot air balloon. So just in a few hours' time, I went from not being able to ride to they get back from their honeymoon, and I'm riding a bike. <laughs> yep, you missed it. <laughs> so that year of school, I had my first boyfriend. My first boyfriend was my babysitter's son. <laughs> and I had my first mean teacher, and ghetto blasters and footloose were popular. So some of you might remember that, that time frame. For those of you that are too young to know what a ghetto blaster is, let me inform you. It's a very large box that you would put batteries in and it would play some music for you. You guys all have you know, earbuds that go on the phone and they just go, you can't even tell you have them, right? But no, we had ghetto blasters. <laughs> it was either a ghetto blaster that you shared with everybody or a personal Walkman that you were able to listen to on your own. And I remember those sixth grade girls, they would bring their huge ghetto blasters every day and they would dance to Footloose on the playground. They were so cool. <laughs> I was just getting settled uh, in that new town when I learned I'd be moving again, this time to another state. My stepdad had been stationed out here in Oregon while he served our country in the 82nd Airborne of the Army during Vietnam, and he had two kids out here. So the next summer, we moved to right here in McMinnville, leaving my dad, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my grandparents, everyone. Of course, I still got to visit them, but the distance from Oregon to Indiana is a bit more than just a car drive. <laughs> in December 1984, for Christmas, at the oh-so-mature age of seven, I started my unaccompanied minor flights. I would do this every Christmas and summer. I would board a plane in Portland, Oregon, 
and then I would fly to either Denver or Chicago or one of the other big hubs that would then uh, send me on to Indianapolis, uh, Indiana. And it always seemed like it didn't matter which trip it was, what time of year it was, I always lost my suitcases. But luckily, they always delivered them just the next day on the doorstep. <laughs> I would visit my dad and my grandparents every Christmas for a whole week and a month each summer. So considering I only spent about five out of 52 weeks with them each year, it might seem as though there wasn't a whole lot of time to build relationships and grow together and make an impact in my story but that really couldn't be further from the truth. So I have another book that we're gonna grab. And just so you guys know, my mom says that I'm supposed to tell you guys that she raised me better, I should have shoes on. But <laughs> I just couldn't do it. <laughs> so my grandma's stories had a great impact on my own story. And to best describe her, I'm just gonna read a portion of the eulogy that I wrote for her because it is just a great synopsis of who she is and what, she, uh, what her impact was on my life. So this is my grandma Miller, or grandma Kitty as my kids call her. She was one of a kind, so this was my dad's mom. She was an amazing woman. She was able to close the thousands of miles between Indiana, Indiana and Oregon for many, many years. You know, a personal observation in life is that when friends and family move away, it's really easy to just lose contact or not keep in touch and not be close. And, but it, that's just not the way grandma was. She told me when I was just seven, as I was moving thousands of miles away, that she and I would see the same moon. And when the moon was full, she was especially thinking of me. Grandma closed those miles between her and that seven-year-old by writing letters to me every single week. Her dedication to penning notes showed me just how much she thought of me. Every week for nearly 20 years, I got a letter from my dear grandma. And even after that, I got them often, they just weren't weekly. <laughs> so that's over 1,040 proclamations that even though my grandma and I were not physically close, she loved me and was thinking about me, and it completely closed the miles between us. When you're an awkward teenager, and you're trying to figure out where you fit in in the whole arena of life, uh, and you get home from school, and there's a letter with your name and that handwriting in the mailbox, there's no frustration or disappointment that mattered anymore. I certainly would not be the person I am without her. I know her prayers and conversations with God had a direct impact on my life. Our times together at Christmas and each summer were like no other. Despite her lupus that she lived with all my life, we had a ton of fun. Even when I was an adult, and which, you know, if I'm an adult, that makes her old. <laughs> but she'd still get down on the floor in her living room and play the game that we created when I was just little. It was a ping pong ball and her yardstick, and we would play that for hours, and our giggles could be heard by the neighbors for sure. And though our time was limited, she had a way about making it the absolute best. And she was so sweet when I stayed over at night. Uh, when I was really little, she would just sleep with me so that I wouldn't be, as, be afraid. If you guys have ever lived in the Midwest, you're familiar with the kind of thunderstorms they have, the ones that the thunder and the lightning just rattles the windows and 
it feels like the whole house is going to crash in on you. So she would just sleep with me, knowing that I didn't have that out in Oregon. As I got older, though, she would just come check on me. And she was one of those grandmas that kind of worried all night. So she'd check on me multiple times a night. But one night, she was trying to cover me up, and I kept kicking back off the covers. And she said something about me getting cold. And I told her, I know you're right, but the cinnamon is hot. You see, <laughs> that summer was the summer I discovered big red gum. <laughs> you know, as I reflect back on life, she gave me so much more to chew on than just gum. I'm so grateful for the times that I was able to have with her, even after I moved away. I was able to attend my church with my dad and my grandma uh, each trip that I went out there. But keep in mind, you know, at most that was maybe five out of every 52 weeks. So not very often. But God used those moments, every one of them. Also, during those summers, I would usually visit my mom's sister, my Aunt Karen and Uncle Robin, for a night or two. And that was right before I flew back to Oregon. A lot of times uh, we would meet up, my dad and then would meet up, and, and then uh, they would end up being the ones that took me to the airport in a couple days. Once I became a teenager and a young adult, I always aspired to be just like my aunt and uncle. But when I was a kid, they would really annoy me. They would include me with their family devotion or Bible time, and it was just annoying. <laughs> Looking back, though, those were moments that small seeds of faith were planted within me. And there was something about them. My aunt and uncle just radiated love for each other and love for their kids, and they were just different. I had so much fun with them, and they're just different. And they seemed to have some sort of joy that I didn't have. Little did I know how much their stories would influence me later on. In 1995, I had just finished high school. Playing softball while I was in high school, sort of running cross country on the team, but I had an injury, so I think I only ended up doing like one big race, and it was pretty cool. <laughs> and I got almost three days. And this was all while I was conditioning myself to find joy and happiness in people. Only by God's grace did my morals and limits somewhat align with his. I decided, since I was going to go into nursing school, that I would become a CNA, or a Certified Nurse's Assistant, just out of high school. That I would get my certification, I'd have this great job, and maybe even do it while I was in college. But the problem was, I had to do my clinicals the last week of high school. And so most, I know that there's a few high schoolers that just graduated, but that last week of high school is busy. So I had to do my clinicals during evening shift, and my teacher was very sweet about letting me do that. So I did that at a local nursing home. Funny story here, that fabulous teacher ended up being my future mother-in-law. <laughs> She didn't say a thing to our class about having a son, which she always told every other class about her son, not mine. <laughs> I showed up on evening shift, got placed with a gal on the long haul at Oakwood Country Place. I think it's now prestige care if you guys need reference to local. On the other side of the hallway was this super handsome young guy named James. Before it was even lunchtime, we were a little bit inseparable. 
So much so that the gal that I got paired with said, go ahead and have lunch with him. <laughs> I'll meet you back after. <laughs> so on that night, 26 years ago, my future husband spilled his entire life story to me and swore off smoking pot. <laughs> How many people can say that at the age of 18, they met their future husband at a nursing home? <laughs> we spent so much time together that summer, but in September, I was leaving to go to Klamath Falls for college, meaning we would be five hours away. Right before my move, my stepdad made me wash his truck for the trip to drop me off at college. James was over that day, and he was helping me wash the truck. But he was ornery. Still is, really. He sprayed me with the hose, and he ran. So I went dragging the hose as far as I possibly could to try to get him wet. I wanted to pay him back, because that's how I am. I ran out of hose, and I was not happy. And he was just out of water range. And I can still picture it to this day, where he's down by the barn and I'm up in the, in the um, grass trying to reach him. And I'm sure I was whining, because that's kind of my MO. I'm kind of a whiner. And I'm sure he was whining about how it wasn't fair that I couldn't reach him and spray him back. And he shouts, tell me you love me and I'll let you get me wet. So I shout, honestly, if I said that, it would probably be true. At this point in our relationship, our romantic milestones occurred in a nursing home and while washing a truck. <laughs> I was starting to make that relationship a source of joy, as most people naturally would. So the very next day, my parents dropped me off at OIT, which is Oregon Institute of Technology down in Klamath Falls, Oregon, to begin my studies in nursing. Now, I have to put this in perspective, because times have changed a lot. The only computer I had ever seen was the size of a microwave. <laughs> I had never seen a cell phone, and if we needed to reach somebody, we just had to find the nearest payphone, dial collect, and then that person would pay the really fat fee to talk to you. There is no FaceTime, there's no Facebook chat, there's no ways to send instant messages or even pictures. Nothing. The only thing that we had was to send letters or packages with the pictures by snail mail. It took forever. In order for us to talk, we had to dial 1010-511 and pay a dollar for the first minute and five cents for each additional minute. Otherwise, our calls were even more crazy expensive than that is. We frequently talked on the phone for hours at a time. James and I truly did the long distance thing. He visited me a few times while I was there that year, and we could not wait for school breaks. I had no car at college, but I would try to hitch a ride home as often as I could, and that was a few really scary rides home. Not wise. <laughs> right after we met, James's grandma passed away. So the year that I was away at OIT, James lived with this Grandpa Knuth. What a wise man he was. His grandpa told him, you best get yourself enrolled in that college or you're going to lose that girl. And that is just what he did. Not only did he do that, 
He enrolled in the college, but the summer before moving there, he made sure he wasn't going to lose me and proposed. We were staying at a friend's house in Klamath Falls while we were looking for a place to rent for the school year. And while we were alone, he dropped to a knee and asked me to spend my life with him. I was so excited and happy. That September in 1996, we moved in to a tiny pink trailer, tiny pink trailer, and started our lives together. I was attending OIT for nursing, and he was computer science engineering. And that winter, we froze. The only heat we had was a very large oil tank outside, and we just didn't have the money to be paying for oil. So we moved our bedroom, actually we closed off our bedroom, and we put an air mattress in our living room slash dining room. It was all the same room. I mean, it was the width of a blow-up mattress. <laughs> I had mono and head-to-toe hives for a week due to a stressful work, work situation. But we made it through or that winter, and that spring, we found a new place to live. <laughs> Keep in mind, through all this, I'm finding my joy, instead of finding my joy and happiness in my friends, which is what I'd always done up to this point, now I've replaced my friends with one man. One man. Expecting one man to make and keep me happy is a crazy thought. But again, I think this is something that we've all done at some point in our lives. It's easy to look for others for joy and happiness. And so we were married, as you guys can see the picture, August 30th, 1997 in McMinnville, in the backyard of my parents, or the front yard of my parents, reception in the backyard, the same day that Princess Diana died, and we began our married life together. James was raised Mormon, and I only had a basic understanding of who God was. But I was occasionally drawn to pick up his Bible and read to us at night. The problem was I always started to read the Bible like any other book. Who would start in the middle of a book? So I'd pick up the Bible and I would read Genesis. It is a great story, it's very important. However, no one new to Christianity should ever start in the book of Genesis. I didn't know this. <laughs> so we at this point have not lived anything like a life living for the Lord looks. We were only living for the moment, and I was very, very dependent on James. Not only for happiness and joy, but I wouldn't even do anything without him. In August 1998, James and I flew out to Indiana for him to meet my grandma, my dear grandma that we've already shared about, and visit my dad and other extended family. While we were there, we learned we were going to have our first baby just as we had hoped. She was gonna be in due in May, so she would be born a whole month before I graduated, which that allowed us to take her to class for that month, and you know, that's the first month they sleep. <laughs> so, perfect plan. And then that way, I would have more time with her before I had to go find a job in my field of study. And my field of study, is now applied psychology. Yep, not nursing. <laughs> I applied, I was accepted. 
I was going to the OHSU School of Nursing at OIT, exactly what I wanted to do. You know, isn't it wonderful when plans work out exactly how you plan them? But isn't it frustrating when they don't and they get flipped around? My first term of nursing was in 1997. I was 19, just turning 20, getting married that summer, so just a couple months away when I was told I would be responsible for doctor's errors. <laughs> me? Not me. I can't even take care of myself at this point. There's no way I'm going to be responsible for doctor errors. So that one statement changed the entire trajectory of my life, and I switched my degree from nursing to applied psychology. But let's get back to the perfect plan of Kaylee being born in May. On April 20th, 1999, my water started leaking. Some of you might remember this day well, because it's the day that the Columbine High School massacre occurred. Little that I know at the time, but this event in history would eventually make a significant impact in my life. For a whole week, I was in the birthing center receiving monitoring and Pitocin, trying to have a baby, and listening to news story after news story, as this was the first mass high school shooting. My relationship with the Lord at this point is absolutely non-existent. So all of the news stories were completely overwhelming. And after being in the hospital for a week and no progress toward having a baby, I convinced them to let me out because I really needed to get back to classes. I was missing classes. This plan was not working. But I had to go to the doctor's office six days a week for monitoring and blood draws and ultrasounds three times a week. That third week, Kaylee's heartbeat started becoming very irregular. As a new mama, laying there in a room all by myself and listening to Kaylee's heartbeat, it was scary. I knew something wasn't right. I would tell the person about Kaylee's heartbeat, and each time, they would just go ahead and unhook me and tell me, you know, come back tomorrow at such and such time. Then on May 11th, 1999, my OB finally got back from vacation. And I told her, I said, can you just listen to the heartbeat? It just doesn't sound right. And so she agreed. She told me to go home, get my things, make any phone calls that I needed to, and meet her at the hospital. So in a couple hours, that's what I did. They hooked up a machine to monitor the baby better. They wanted just to have me on one of the hospital machines. And they monitored for quite some time, and they did in indeed confirm that this baby's heart, ba heart rate, heart rate, heartbeat <laughs> is not regular. And so the OB said, okay, I'm gonna step out of the room. When I come back in, we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna break your water and we're gonna stick an internal monitor or an actual monitor on Kaylee's head. But instead, I turned to get up, and all of a sudden, my water broke. <laughs> we didn't have to have it broken. So they put in a monitor. It's, a, it's this little, it sounds horrible, but it's this little screw that they stick in the baby's head. We learned, though, that Kaylee indeed had a very irregular heartbeat, and she needed to be born now. We were told three different scenarios to expect. One, she could come out and be totally fine. Two was she could come out and continue to have heart problems and heart arrhythmias. And the third scenario was she could just code, meaning that she would need CPR and other assistance to survive. So here we are, first baby, 
not walking with the Lord. It's just James and I, and these are the scenarios that we have. At 348 via C-section, Kaylee was born healthy with no ongoing heart problems. Praise God. Except we didn't praise him. We didn't have a relationship with him. So God didn't get any of the credit. It's obvious now looking back that even though we weren't walking with God, he was definitely watching over our situation. Remember those seeds that people were planting all through my life? Some just by living their own lives for Jesus. Some actually telling me about Jesus. And some that were so faithfully teaching Sunday school as I visited with my dad and grandma, my Aunt Karen and Uncle Robin, or the few times I went with others. Well, those seeds slowly took root. Not long after Kaylee was born, I was convicted of raising our baby knowing God. So I shared that desire with James. But James was completely content living the way we always had. This was a big struggle for our marriage. Because of my dependence on him, I wasn't comfortable going to church by myself, so I'd just nag him. All right, ladies, how well does nagging work? (laughs) I know, you guys are shocked that the more I nagged, the less he wanted to go. He wanted nothing to do with God, nothing. He would tell you he's quite content living on his own without God. I was not content, and I knew there was more to life, and I wanted it for our Kaylee, for baby. I had spent my whole life looking for joy in people and circumstances. And sure, I found moments of happiness, but not true joy and purpose. I was looking for the joy my Aunt Karen had. And so that brings me to her story. Aunt Karen's story is of strong faith and contagious joy. And it's had my attention as long as I can remember. She has been the ultimate example to me all my life. Someone I've always seen as a rock for Jesus. She has persevered through so much and her faith is unwavering through it all. Has she made mistakes? Of course she has. But she has faith that can move mountains. Her marriage has had rocky spots. She and my uncle have lost the business which in turn meant they lost everything. She has already lost a daughter-in-law to cancer. Though she and my uncle are relatively young, they have both had life-altering medical issues. But the one thing that I've seen through all of it is her strong faith in Christ and continued joy throughout every one of her circumstances. And that's what I was looking for. So ultimately, James and I attended a church in Klamath Falls, but we really never got plugged in. However, this provided so many pivotal moments in my current relationship with Christ, because this is the point that the Columbine massacre impacted my life all over again. The youth in that church did a dramatization about the Columbine shooting and the students that were told to deny their God, and they did not. If kids could declare their love for Christ and stand for that love to death, why can't I? The youth also occasionally led worship there, and some songs just stick out to this day because I, I, I feel like I was being called. Now, I believe honestly that the Lord has called me so many different times in my life to him, 
But this point was the first time that I truly responded with anything but disregard. By the time that James graduated with his computer science engineering degree from OIT in 2001, Kaylee was two, and I insisted we move back to Northern Oregon, specifically McMinnville. Sometime when I was young and I had moved away from my grandma, I vowed I would never, never keep my kids, my future kids, from being physically close to their grandparents. This was something that I shared with James very early on in our relationship, but it did make it very difficult for us because there were no computer engineering jobs in McMinnville, much less around here. They were all out of state. He ended up working for temp services, doing horrible jobs, paying for a degree that was not being used, and we were really, really struggling. All of our living in the moment, doing whatever we wanted, and not giving any thought to consequences left us in great debt. One pivotal thing happened, though, when we moved back to McMinnville. James said, you find a church, and I'll go. Thankfully, time had changed me a bit, because a few years prior, there's no way I would have gone to a church to try to find one on my own. I was still extremely dependent upon him, however, way less than previous years. So I actually felt that I could take that step and go out and find us a church. I came into this church because I had gone a couple times when I was in high school with a girlfriend. It was just one of those random, random opportunities that I came. And so I was like, well, I'll just go back to the only church I've ever gone to in McMinnville and try it out. <laughs> the pastor at the time was Ron Smith, and he did not know me from the next person that walked through the door, but he came up to my seat and he greeted me but he greeted me like he'd known me forever, that I wasn't a stranger, that I was some long lost friend, and that's all it took for me. <laughs> and then I let James know I found a church, and James attended. Funny side note here, James attended this church also as a teenager, probably around the same time I did, because of a girl. <laughs> but, <laughs> He was able to tell the youth pastor of that time, a decade and a half later, that the seeds that he planted in that youth group grew, which is really cool. So we've attended right here at Calvary Max since that day, June 2001, 20 years ago. So while my spiritual life was starting to blossom and grow, our finances were not at all. We definitely used money to buy things that we thought would provide us joy. I was especially guilty of this. Ultimately, our financial situation led us to file bankruptcy and move in with my parents, with our second baby, Kyler, due in six months. We finalized our bankruptcy the same month Kyler was born in July 2002. We were having to start completely over. While we were going through this horrible time with our finances, God again showed me someone else's story with the purpose of impacting my own story. My perspective of our financial crisis was greatly altered by watching the story of a different crisis from another family at our church right here. And that family is the Thomas family. 
The Thomas family were enduring a huge trial with their seven-year-old. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer, knowing that a family was literally fighting to save their child's life made our financial problems pale in comparison. Praise God that Daniel is still alive today and doing well, but at the time, we had no idea what would happen to him. I watched his family's unwavering faith and continued joy as I read every single update on their journey. I'd seen people respond with faith in the midst of a crisis before, but joy? pure joy. How could anyone claim to have joy during a time like that? They were witnessing to me without them even knowing it, and they probably still don't know it. (laughs) People plant seeds just by living a Christ-centered life. The same week Kyler was due, James started working at the state hospital. This is a a good story. (sighs) He had to get his CNA license all over again, And I talked to him on Monday morning, July 15th, and he said Kyler absolutely had to wait for his due date, July 19th, to be born. Quote, if I miss any time this week, I will be kicked out of the program. Well, just a few hours later, (laughs) after lunch, Kyler was not nearly as active as he normally was. And I happened to work at the doctor's office, my OB and primary care, And so I went to the triage nurse and I told her, you know, things just aren't, he's just not being normal. Like every day after lunch, he had hiccups. He just wasn't moving around. So they decided that I should go to the hospital and have my baby checked. While I was there, a nurse came rushing into the room and asked me if I felt that. I was like, felt what? I was informed I was having contractions (laughs) and asked how soon my husband could be here. Oh, well, I called James. And he was absolutely not allowed to leave class without losing his job that we so desperately needed. I told the doctor that as long as the baby and I were fine, we're gonna wait. Problem was, I'd already had a C-section with Kaylee, so I didn't want my uterus to work. But I got him to wait, James got done at downtown Salem. So picture this, rush hour, five o'clock p.m. He gets done with his class and to this day does not remember the drive to McMinnville Hospital, but he does know that he stopped at McDonald's and got some food because he knew he wouldn't eat that night. So he left downtown Salem at five o'clock and he made it to the McMinnville Hospital in 25 minutes with a stop at McDonald's. The second he arrived, we headed to the operating room and Kyler was born at 6.02 p.m. On one hand, life couldn't be any better. I had a husband, a daughter, a son. I was starting to connect with God more. But on the other hand, we were starting over financially and had two children to care for. We will forever be grateful that my parents opened their home to us in a time that we had no other option for housing. But living with my parents at this point in life wasn't easy. They both worked full time. So I tried to keep Kyler quiet, especially at night. This made Kyler very spoiled, and he would only go to sleep if he was swinging or rocking. After living with my parents for six months, we had the opportunity to house sit for my grandparents for six weeks while they traveled. 
After those six weeks, we knew we had to do everything possible to not have to go back and live with my parents. <laughs> so we got an apartment in McMinnville. Kyler was two months old when we moved into that apartment, and I was so mesmerized by these two. They were just one of a kind. Kaylee looked so much like me, and Kyler looked so much like James, but yet the two of them looked so much like each other. And they were absolutely in love with each other. Kaylee could not keep her hands off that child, and that child would not stop smiling at that girl. For the first time in my life, I wanted to find my birth family because I always knew I was number eight. If I was number eight, then that means that somebody looks like me. For some reason, I couldn't let that thought go. And I'm not sure why, but I, I, you know, I, know, I know things happen for a reason, and that, that thought was there for a reason. And so I needed to find my birth mom in order to find my siblings. So I went on the internet and couldn't find a thing on the internet. I even contacted the county that my parents uh, lived in and the county adoption agency that they worked with. That was a dead end also. So in the end, I sent a letter to the state of Indiana, and in response, I received what they called non-identifying information. I learned my birth mom was born in Ohio. She was 32 when she had me, and she only completed the eighth grade. That made it a little more pressing. She was 32 when she had me, so she wasn't super young. And that was it. That's all I got. Unless she wrote a letter requesting my information, the case would be closed forever. And I wouldn't ever meet a single one of them. So life went on. I was looking to my kids and James for joy. And yet, God continued to use people and their stories to make an impact on my story. One particularly impactful time came in 2004. It was April. I had just arrived home with the kids. Probably one of those nights where James was working because he worked a lot for us. And the message machine light was blinking. I pressed the button to hear the mom of my best friend from college telling me there had been an emergency down in Southern California. I learned that my best friend's husband, who I knew well, had committed suicide. By the grace of God, I was already scheduled to fly down and see them the following week. But this is one of the times in my life, looking back, that I know I was finally living my life knowing Jesus. His word was becoming very real to me, and scripture was just becoming an anchor in my life. I still was not living my life completely focused on God, but I loved God, and I shared my love of God and his love of us along with his promises with my girlfriend, Tammy, who had just started going to Bible studies herself. Her daughter, Alyssa, was 10 months old at the time of this tragedy. Eventually, her daughter was adopted by her now husband. Even at a young age, Alyssa's story impacts my life. And so I'm gonna share about Alyssa. So during the court proceedings for the adoption, the judge asked Alyssa, who was by then about uh, three years old, and he says to her, who's standing next to you? She replied, he's my daddy. The judge immediately granted adoption of her. Now, why do I share her story with us? Because the result of our acceptance of Jesus' gift gives us the same confidence 
of who God is as our father, as this young child had about this man who is now her daddy. This truth and confidence has changed my life and my focus. This wonderful young lady just celebrated her high school graduation this month, and I'm so grateful to have witnessed her influential story. So God has messages for us, messages of encouragement, messages of correction, messages of guidance, and messages of love. Oh, how easy would it be if a light just flashed saying, I want your attention, I want your attention. So my case though, it seems like he sure enjoyed using the message machine light to introduce me to a new impactful story that impacts my life. It was March 2006, and I was pregnant with our third child, Bowen. Actually, Caleb Bowen, but most of you know him as Bowen. I arrived home with the kids by myself again. Like I said, James worked a lot for me to be with our kids. (laughs) So I clicked the button to hear a blinking, you know, because the light's blinking again. Click the button to hear an introduction from a lady named Evelyn, followed by... I think I'm your birth mom. Actually, I know I'm your birth mom. I received information in the mail today. If you'd like to call me back, my number is. Holy cow. Keep in mind, it has been almost three years since I had attempted to make any contact. Life had truly gone on. I was stunned, and I was caught off guard. I called James, and I was still in absolute shock. My heart was racing. I had no idea if I should be crying or laughing or dancing. The emotions were all mixed up. But I did end up calling her, and we spoke for quite a while. I took notes of all my siblings' names, their birthdays, their kids' names, where they lived, how old they were, still have the paper to this day in my safe all the information's there. But my one burning question was, you're giggling already, do all the women have large chests? (laughs) You see, before I was even married, I'd already had a breast reduction. So I was really, really curious. Those are the types of things that you think about when you don't know your biological family. Shortly afterward, I got a family picture from my oldest sister that had them all at a wedding the summer before. Boy, can I say that first impressions from a picture are not necessarily accurate. And I did find out that yes, the women were large busted, (laughs) which my poor daughter also in turn got from me. (laughs) My family and friends were supportive of this new adventure of mine. However, there was some apprehension. My mom, Judy, however, was very supportive because she knew how close our relationship was and that nothing could change that between us. In October 2007, my stepdad's mom, we called her Mama, passed away right here in McMinnville, and two days after she passed, we had her service. Just minutes after getting home from her service, my dad from Indiana called to tell me that my grandpa had been working out in the garage, came inside, sat down, was chatting with my grandma, and closed his eyes and died. My dear grandma, who had written me over 1,000 letters, was always there for me, just lost her soulmate. 
I had to get on a plane and be there for her. James, like he has always done, encouraged me to go as soon as possible. I took Bowen with me since he was younger than two and could be a lap passenger, and that would make things way easier at home for James. And while I was in Indiana for my grandpa's service, I called my oldest sister. And I told her I was in town for just a couple of days. I gave her a very specific time and place that I would meet her. And she and her husband met Bowen and I at a pizzeria. Mm-hmm. I did indeed look like someone. Meeting her for the first time was amazing. And it was a very brief visit. We literally had pizza and left, which, uh, but it's led to so many more visits over the last 13 years. And it was the beginning of new chapters in my story. At this point in time, I was 30 and things were looking bright. Relationally, I had just created a new connection with my birth family. Spiritually, I was growing. And financially, we were finally crawling out of a hole. And after many years of rebuilding our credit, we were fortunate enough to qualify to purchase a home. At the end of 2007, we put the, our offer on that first ever home. This is a funny story too. We looked at a home in Lafayette and we loved it, but it, it was in a trailer park and the yard was non-existent. And we had, we had three kids at this point. So I was a no-go. <laughs> but we had said to each other, if only we could find that house, on its own lot. So James happened to uh, drive through Dayton on a, his way, from, way home from work or something. I don't know what took him through Dayton, but he, asked, or he saw this house and from the first impression, it had a great yard. So he asked me to set up a viewing and we were shocked. When we walked through the home, it was almost the identical house that we had just looked at in Lafayette. And it was on this huge lot. So we uh, put an offer in right away, and in February 2008, we moved into our home in Dayton. With this move, though, came the question, do we find a church in our new community, or do we continue to go to Calvary Chapel? And ultimately, as you guys can see, <laughs> we chose to stay and grow our relationships right here rather than starting anew in a new community. So, I have some amazing friends that have helped me through this journey called life. <laughs> and so their, their stories have had a great influence on mine. And so I would not be the person I am today without amazing friendship of Monique Godfrey. Some of you probably don't know who she is, but she was a longtime uh, Calvary Chapel attender. She was an earthly picture of Jesus to me. Every time I needed wisdom, she was there. She also watched my kids frequently and spent hours putting cornrows in my hair to surprise James for his birthday one year. And by the way, you, if you're interested, you can listen to Monique's story on episode 15 of the Story Night podcast. And then Joanna Canfield, boy, she's done so much for me over the years, from watching my kids while I worked or went to appointments, to bringing them to the hospital in Portland to meet their new sibling, to financially helping me to get to go on women's retreats, and putting up with my ornery husband <laughs> on game nights. Love ya. <laughs> and then Jackie, thank you for suggesting your daughter babysit so many years ago. Our friendship started there, 
and it is a treasure. Eventually, being next door neighbors and raising our kids together was a blast. Frankie Everett. As you guys all heard, we were not supposed to be friends, but God had a different plan, and I cannot imagine life without your family, and I'm so excited that you guys chose to move back to Oregon. And I know the list is longer, but for the sake of time, just know that if I've spent any length of time with you, I am so thankful for you being in my life. Thank you for letting me be part of your stories and for being a part of mine. So after my grandpa died, I tried to faithfully call my grandma every day. But in May 2010, it was time for a visit. This time, James made it so that I could take all three kids. And at this point, they were 11, almost eight, and almost three. Uh, We stayed with my grandma in her little 1,000 square foot home. And I again let my sister know, hey, I'm gonna be in town, I'm available, you know, whatever time I was available. And she set up a barbecue at her house. And it's not, it wasn't far from my grandma's house. I took clothes, and you know, when I think back, it's like, why on earth would I take clothes and think I was gonna stay the night there? But I did, with my three kids, I packed up clothes and, uh, for the night and the next day, just in case. And on the way to her house, I stopped and picked up chips, and I called James. I was having a really hard time again, identifying all those emotions that were going on, because I was super excited on one hand. I was super nervous. I was scared. I was super excited. I was unsure. I was giddy, and I just couldn't pin him. (laughs) I pulled in the driveway, and my sister's husband met us at the car. He said hello to Bo like they had known each other from two and a half years ago when we had gone out there. And Bo just loved him. We walked into the house where five of my siblings, their families, and my birth mom were. And in a moment that could have and really should have been very uncomfortable, it was exactly opposite. The kids immediately were comfortable and went downstairs and played with the other kids that were there. And I stayed up to visit with all the adults. And we did end up staying the night. We played games late into the night, which is one of my favorite pastimes. And that was the beginning of forming relationships with my birth family, the very people I indeed look like. We flew home to Oregon, not really knowing what the future would hold with all the people we had just met. But I experienced the mission that I had set out to accomplish. I met so many of my siblings and their kids and discovered that not only did we share a physical resemblance, but a spiritual one as well. So now back to Oregon. James worked as a CNA at the state hospital ever since the week that Kyler was born, July 2002. I had worked in medical records at a local doctor's office until the day that Kyler arrived. After taxes and paying childcare, I would have made maybe $200 a month. And our joke, James and my joke, was, well, you know, we could collect cans to make that much. (laughs) Granted, they were only five cents back then, not the 10 cents they are today, but. (laughs) And so we decided that I would be best suited at home, which is definitely where I wanted to be. This allowed me to homeschool Kaylee in first grade also, but James often worked two to three doubles a week, which equates to like 56 to 64 hours a week so that I could stay home with our kids. 
His hard work allowed me to be a stay-at-home mom for two years before I eventually went back to work again, but only part-time and very part-time at the cancer center. I was only there because my mama worked there and said, Laura, I need your help for six weeks. Six weeks. So I agreed to help for six weeks, and then you'll find out how long I stayed. <laughs> In 2007-ish, James had an opportunity to apply to participate in an accelerated nursing program paid for through his job. But he had to agree to work three additional years after completing the program, which seemed like a lot at the time, but he's so far past that that it's been amazing. But so in 2010, in December, he graduated with his nursing degree and we were so proud of him. He spent the previous three years working nearly full-time and going to school full-time. He was a rock star, and on top of that, he was a daddy full-time, too. So we, James and I, truly came to believe that the money we earn is God's, and that he trusts us to use what he has given us wisely. So in fall 2012, we embarked on another life-changing journey. We enrolled in the Dave Ramsey Financial Peace 10-week class taught right here at Calvary Chapel. This was also the same time that I went ahead and I increased my hours at the cancer center. And at that point, Bowen was now in school full-time all day, so it made sense. And in that class, we learned the importance of every penny having a place and preparing a budget in such a way that there weren't so many emergencies like school clothes shopping, school supplies come August. And so the other thing that is part of that is we have like our auto tags and our driver's license and all of those things have a spot in our budget every single month. Um, and so it just didn't drain our bank account. Our finances certainly didn't change overnight. And I truly believe that as James and I both changed our focus in life from just living for ourselves to living for the Lord, that we wanted to become better stewards. But let me be the first to admit that I have not reached perfect maturity in the financial department. <laughs> but here's what I know about money and joy. Joy is not dependent on money, and more money does not necessarily mean more joy. Joy is definitely one of those things in life that can't necessarily be seen or measured. But I have an excellent example of where I have definitely seen the true joy of God in my life. I've had the honor and privilege to serve the youth of Calvary Chapel for the last nine years on the bike trip. Some of you are familiar with the bike trip, but those of you that don't know what the bike trip is, let me share a little. We load kids up on a bus, their bikes and packs with all their belongings for a week on a U-Haul, and we head up to Anacortes, Washington. We also have a second U-Haul with all of our food and supplies to camp for a week moving around the San Juan Islands, packing up every two to three days. James and I are in charge of all the meals for around 60 people for a week while camping. James is also the camp nurse. I'm his uh, lovely assistant. <laughs> and we also, this last year and this year, will be doing small groups or breakfast groups as well. Some of the days when we move to different islands, we're up and have breakfast cooked for the kids before 6 a.m. The only time that I am ever up before 7 
is to go to catch an airplane for vacation. <laughs> There's no way that in my own human strength that I can be friendly, compassionate, reliable, much less joyful with that kind of schedule and duties. But I tell you what, that entire week, I am absolutely overfilled with joy. Joy for the Lord and to be able to serve him. Joy to be with the kids that entire week. And it is his joy and strength that I am up every morning, well before seven, and up every night till at least 11. And I still have a smile on my face and pep in my step. There's no way that is me in my human form. <laughs> So this week, we just finished VBS with the kids. So 100, 100 kids or 100-ish, and the banner verse for the week was, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power, Ephesians 6.10. What a great week to be reminded of God's strength and power and allow his joy to permeate me as this next week begins bike trip preparations. Throughout all my adult life, I've learned more and more to trust on God as the author of my story and listen to his leading. And last fall, it became apparent through circumstances and people, it was time to take a leap of faith and leave my job at the cancer center right here in town. And it was a job that James and I got very comfortable with the income it produced. The first eight years I worked there, remember this was a six week gig. <laughs> the first eight years I worked there part time. And just as we started the Dave Ramsey curriculum in 2012, and Bo was in school full-time, I took up working full-time. All of the years of budgeting, every penny made a difference. James and I sat down with our budget, stripped absolutely everything we could, all the fun stuff, <laughs> knowing that the Lord was requesting my time, not just our money. So December 31st, 2020 was my last day of employment. The Lord has a plan for me, and I just don't know exactly what it is. <laughs> All I know is that I could not provide the time that the Lord was wanting and clearly asking for while working a full-time job. By the way, I was there for 15 years. <laughs> six weeks. Yeah, it's just a little over six weeks. <laughs> The Lord used my time at the Cancer Center to grow my relationship with Him. And I learned a lot about who I am and my purpose on this earth. I was created in the image of God to do great things. I only know this because it's from God's Word. I would not have a story without God having a plan for my life. I had the honor to walk alongside Many people walking through one of the darkest, deepest valleys we face as humans. I know I worked there for a reason, and during that time, the Lord taught me not to depend on circumstances or people to determine whether I'm going to live a joy-filled life. My true joy is found in Him alone. If I had allowed the circumstances to determine my joy, I would not have been a very effective employee. One thing I have learned is when my joy depended on people around me and the circumstances of life, I was always disappointed. And I got my feelings hurt really easy. Ultimately, every person that the Lord has placed in my life is to bless me and to help me grow. Sometimes 
Those growing moments have been unpleasant and hard. But sometimes that person or situation brings me joy and happiness. However, the people and circumstances do not and cannot determine whether I have joy. My marriage and relationships with friends have improved once I quit depending on them to determine my happiness. Because throughout my life, I looked for joy in my friends, food, my family, work, my husband, but I never truly found it in those people and things because people are not perfect. And food just added a whole lot of pounds. My true unending joy is found in the Lord. That is the secret that my Aunt Karen and Monique Godfrey and the Thomas family possess. So James and I now have a sophomore in Dayton High School, Bowen, who many of you know, and Kaylee and Kyler are both attending OSU. They live next door to each other. Kaylee lives in the house of Karis and Kyler in the Antioch house. Each house has 40 to 50 kids living in them, and they're Christ-centered, focused living. Could I ask every one of you to pray for these kids, all of these kids, that they won't be in their 30s before they learn to not depend on people and circumstances for joy? I have one more story that we need to highlight tonight in order for my story to be complete. And this is my incredible mom, Judy. Though she and my dad were unable to conceive a baby, God blessed us with each other when I was just three days old. I am who I am today because of that, that strong woman. She has taught me perseverance. She's given me a work ethic like no other. She's taught me unconditional love, and my mom is truly my best friend. <laughs> she has taken on the role with Kaylee and Kyler that my grandma Miller filled in my life. They are not thousands of miles away, but she can't just stop in and see them and say hi either. She makes a point to send them a card every week to remind them that they're not alone and that she is thinking about them. So by the way, is there someone in your life that needs to know that they're not alone and that they're thought of often, even though you have miles or circumstances between you? Last November, Evelyn, my birth mom, passed away. Her celebration of life was the very first time that all eight of us kids were ever together in one room. And so I want to share the rest of Evelyn's story that she wrote back in 2006. Uh, remember, she was about 60 years old. On May 6th, three days after Delina was born, she went home with a couple that had been married four years and couldn't have children of their own. I helped a stranger become a mother that year. I never doubted that I made the right choice for my baby, and I have always kept her in my prayers. I often wondered where she was and even if she was still alive. For the longest time, I never talked about Daylina because I was afraid of what people would think of me. 
I've always believed babies are a gift from God, but I also know it takes a man and a woman to conceive that baby. It took me a long time to forgive myself for what I did all those years ago, but then I began talking about her first to my daughters and then a few friends. One night at work, we're talking about foster children and adoption, and I mentioned Daylina. The next night, one of the ladies brought me a copy of a request from the state of Indiana to try and locate the adoption information. I began my story with God knowing us before we are born. Did he know I would give birth to Laura? I don't know, but I do know he took my mistake and brought something good from it. I truly believe that God doesn't make mistakes. He answered the prayers of Laura's mom and dad and used me for their answer. So as you guys can see, God used the stories of others to teach me and shape me into what my story is today. I am an ordinary woman, but I learned an extraordinary truth, truth about where joy is found. I'm here tonight to give God all the glory. He saw me before I was made, and he had a plan for me. Let us go tonight knowing that our joy is found in the Lord. He can use our mistakes for his glory, and no seed is too small for our Lord to use in others' lives. Thank you so much for being here tonight to hear my story. I appreciate it. Your story is such an example of why we share stories, because all stories connect to all other stories. And I really love that you opened with just that honest statement of feeling like, well, I don't have a story, or maybe my story is not as dramatic or as <laughs> intense as some of the other stories we hear. And I know I have heard many of you in this room say the same thing to me. I don't have a story. <laughs> you have a story, and your story is valuable and it has meaning and it has purpose and it needs to be shared. You don't have to be on stage to share it. Maybe you're just being called to share it with one other person in your life. But please don't feel like you have to have the most dramatic story you've ever heard to have a valuable story. And that is the message we wanna leave you with, with Story Night. We hope that you enjoyed it. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for listening to stories. I hope that you come to all of our live story night events. I hope you, you know, subscribe to the podcast and listen to all of the other stories. They're over 50 and they're all different. And yet they all have the same point. They are real women with real stories and real hope. So thank you for being here. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.